Are you listening? Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, whatever your preference. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Monday Morning Analyst, which, of course, never comes out in the morning, but it's a clever title, sort of. Anyway, you got the idea. 30 minutes, we break down the technical action from over the weekend, three events to look at from this past weekend, World Series of Fighting 18. You can hear my dog. Uh, Let's see. Bellator 133, and then, of course, UFC Fight Night 60. Now, previously what I had done was sort of go in chronological order, and then I didn't give myself enough time to do the bigger event. So I'm actually going to start with UFC and then work backwards, if that's all right with you. Um, All right, follow me on Twitter, at SBNLukeThomas. You can email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com, and, of course, Facebook.com slash LukeTSports. I apologize for my dog in advance. Being a dog. All right, let's see here. If we start off the evening, or I should say the uh, podcast, UFC Fight Night 60, this took place at the First Bank Center in uh, Broomfield, Colorado, which is about, I don't know, an hour outside Denver. I've, I've gone to a couple of events there. I've gone to Glory was Glory Denver was there, and uh, I went to, uh, God, what fight night was it where Joe Lazan fought uh, Kenny Florian? Um, anyway, I went there as well. So it's a nice venue. It's a little bit outside Denver, but it's, uh, it's good. It's modern. Internet's good there for what it's worth. Uh, they filled about 5,800 out of about 7,500, so it's a smaller venue and uh, still was not a sellout. Of course, you can sort of determine why, uh, with a gate of about 382,000. Um, I would say that my man of the card has got to be Benson Henderson just because of the, the unique circumstances, although Max Holloway gets a pretty decent uh, he was he was pretty close on what he was able to do. So let's sort of go through the results here and talk about some of the more meaningful action. Some of the fights had fallen out, so there were only four fights on the Fox Sports 1 preliminary card. There was no fight pass portion. All right, so uh, let's James. start the fight card. Uh, first up was a catchweight bout, 158 pounds, between James Muntasri and Cody Pfister. James Muntasri won... At 149 of the second round. Good fight, not great fight. Uh, Muntasri, if you watched Glory a couple of weeks, or maybe a week or so ago, uh, Raymond Daniels has this sort of explosive spinning back kick style where they have to create space and then and then pound you with it. He can do a lot of that and does prefer to do a lot of that. But I think what I saw in this fight was just better adaptation to MMA. Was able to throw those kicks in tighter quarters. Didn't need quite as much space or setup or timing as before. Was able to mix in more normalized, you know, Western boxing kind of hand combinations. Um, great use of and, and and excellent timing with his knees. You know, it's not just throwing a knee when they're in tight, but really finding a way to to time it when they're not expecting it, when they're bringing their hands up, or um, they're just not, you know, they haven't prepared their core to take the shot yet. And he was really really good about that, hurting Fister a number of times. My dog again, um, and then eventually. Uh, you know, eventually getting the back and then securing the choke. But um, the weight issue, we need to keep a, 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 you know an eye on. Um, it's it's something that I think should not be. Um, I don't even want to say it exactly. I mean, there were so many weight issues on this card. I believe Muntasri. I could be wrong about this. Has had issues with it in the past, but in either event, uh, Muntasri doing what I call the Pettis special. 
right, where you hurt guys with a strike, they make a poor decision as a consequence, and then you're able to take advantage of it. And good finishing instincts and good finishing skills, Muntasri is coming along nicely. Uh, in flyweight action, Zach Makovsky taking on Tim Elliott. He won by unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, and 29-28. Zach Makovsky just, this was a very, pretty clear uh, example of what happens when a guy who's a really good grappler goes up against someone who's just a slightly better, really good grappler. Um, that's what this was. Not a lot of striking on the feet. Tim Elliott has a ton of guts, uh, very athletic, surprisingly athletic. Just has, he's just one step below what the better part of that division can offer. And it's not because he doesn't have durability. It's not because he doesn't have energy. It's not because he doesn't have some technique. It's just that he's he's just not quite refined. He's a little bit of a feral animal in there. I know it's fun to show highlights of him, you know, when Makovsky's trying to take his back and he picks him up and then, you know, goes in the air and lands on his back. But these are just, you know, th- that makes him fun and it certainly makes him athletic, but it that's not a skilled way to escape um, someone trying to take your back. You know, it's just not. And so I think that really is, it's the story of Tim Elliott. It's such a fun, athletic guy who has some skills, who I think has another gear to hit. But if he continues to do stuff like that, he's not going to hit it. I will say in his defense, one of the things I really noticed in this fight that I really took away from, dog, I swear to God, I'm going to take you back to the pound. They, they wait until the thing starts, and then they, they start doing this. Um... You notice that Makovsky had a little bit of trouble passing. Like one of the fundamental components of passing is, like uh, I saw, uh, I think it was a either a Hoffa or a Guy Mendez video where he talked about one of the core principles of passing. You know, pressure passing, you sort of you telegraph which way you're going to go, but you can't be so telegraphed that they know you're only going to push one way. That you that you're never really going to mix it up. That you're never going to do anything different. And so. For me, what was kind of interesting was uh, he got caught a little bit in that. And what uh, Elliot was able to do was constantly re-square up his hips underneath, if you notice that. And he never, I don't know if he ever got full guard. Maybe he got full guard a couple times. But he was definitely able to get butterfly guard a lot, or if half butterfly guard. Because he was constantly, you would see Mikowski trying to angle him out for a hip. Like, what do you want to do on some of the passes that he was doing was you want to get whatever side you're going to go to, so I'm going to pass to this person's right side. That's where most people commonly pass. Um, you want to get, if you're going to pass to their right, you need to get that same side hip to the ground. That's what has to happen. for Not for all passes, obviously, but for that pass. In fact, some passes you have to do the exact opposite. But for some of the passes he was trying to do, he was trying to push it down and then knee cut across. And uh, Elliot had really mobile hips underneath and was constantly able to sneak that knee just out the corner. That was a big problem for Bukowski, but in the end, Bukowski just better, was able to eventually pass guard, um, and the the slam, by the way, came from something where Elliot's really good. When you go to spin to take someone's back, you have to beat their arm. So if they're turtled and someone goes around, if no arm is blocking, well, they're just going to go around. But if you get that arm out, you, you know, so you can see, if you get that arm out, uh, it stops them. So what happened was he got the arm out, but then almost got crucifixed. So he just picked him up and went backwards with him like a backpack. Again, fun, interesting, and maybe you can knock a guy out that way. But it just sort of underscores that there's another level of technical specificity that uh, Mikowski benefits from having that Elliot does not. Uh, Chad Skelly defeating Jim Allers uh, via TKO. This one was slightly controversial because it looked like Allers' knee was down when he got hit. Um, either way, I thought he was done. Decent performance from Chad Skelly. Um Better use of his striking. The right hand was... I swear to God, these two. I swear to God. Come here. Come here. Come here, stupid. Come here. Come here. 
Here, say hi, since you are, you're trying to make a show about everything. Um, Chaz Skelly, I thought was doing a really good job of finding a home for the right hand. The, to me, the big takeaway from this fight, because I know we have to, a bunch of fights to get to, but for me, the big takeaway from this fight was, like, you see so much energy with guys spending time trying to push another guy into the cage and then scoop an ankle or get their hands clasped or something like that. And I feel like that's getting a lot better. Guys are just getting really good at stopping that. Say hi. No, no, you wanted to make it all about you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. You're sweet. We make a noise. Um, Allers just never moved his head. And here's what I mean. They, I feel like it used to be the case where and Couture and Penn would have cage takedowns where they would like almost bounce you off the takedown. Like they would use the cage, but in a really short, tight, narrow window. Now you see guys, they'll clinch, they'll fail on a takedown, but they'll keep a hold of you and then they'll push you against the fence and then it's this sort of back and forth. It's been such a point of emphasis to have good takedown defense along the cage that everyone's good at it, basically. Or if they, or if you get them down, they pop the hips right back up. You see it all the time now from every kind of different fighter. You need to have something different with your takedown arsenal to get it done. And not to say that Skelly doesn't, but there's just a lot of time spent that way. Um, but to me, Allers had a problem with this. Other guys had a problem with this. There's just no head movement. Take half the time you spend on cage take down defense, or at least maybe a quarter of the time, some portion of the time, and invest that into getting the head off the side, getting the head off the side when they throw. Because the right hand found a home over and over and over and over. He just kept throwing the same punch. If it works, why not? Just keep doing it. That was a big problem. Uh, Efrain Escudero surprising me, beating Rodrigo de Lima, 30-27, 30-27, 30-27. This was just a complete performance. Again, de Lima, no head movement, zero, right? Efrain Escudero, Efrain, was able to just throw a lot of uh, good, crisp hand combinations, some decent leg kicks as well. Um, he was a better wrestler, did a good job avoiding submissions uh, from Delima's guard. Um, not a lot of passing. He sort of stayed in the guard and continued to pound from there, but didn't really need to pass. Was able to be very quite effective from that. So uh, Escudero surprised me, I have to be honest. Not that I thought Delima was you know, a world beater, but... Uh, I probably unfairly wrote off Escudero, so credit to him for proving me wrong, and and, and probably a few other people as well. Um, Ray Borg, so we move to the main card now. Ray Borg defeating Chris Kaladis via submission, uh, 256 of the third round. This was a great fight as well. Kaladis having some of his moments with threatening with arm bars or... um, uh, a lot of things. But the problem with, with the way he was doing it was, and, and we'll get to how Neil Magny did it and didn't have quite the same problem, um, Chris Kalates would frame up for an armbar, and then if he couldn't get it, he would automatically lose the scramble. You know, so this is one of the reasons why I think you just see less jiu-jitsu is because guys don't want to end up in positions like that, where they're, uh, you know, oh, I want to attack off my back, but then I get past. There's a way to attack from the back and then not get past. It takes a lot of work, and I think this might be one of those moments where Kaladi sort of says, um, you know, this is something I can work on for the future. But you get the idea. So uh, let's see here. But uh, the thing I want to sort of point out was I thought Kaladis did really well. I thought that there was some interesting moments from him defensively. Um, always had, you know, a really urgent way of, of responding to Borg's offense, which I thought was good. But let's talk about that finishing sequence real quick, the uh, Kimura. So he locks it up in a scramble, that that over, that over uh, that uh, double wrist lock grip. So he gets it, but he has to step over the head to do it. Because if you don't step over the head, they can just sit up. Here they come. Unbelievable, right? I, sh- I knew I should. This is why I close that door when I do this. 
Because these two animals, literally, just, they think it's their hour. Anyway, uh, if you don't step over the head, if you just have the Kimura, they can just sit up. Now, if they sit up, you can take their back. Um, there's things you can do, but they can also then scramble out. That's a problem, and you can lose the grip. So that's why you want to step over the head, because it isolates them from sitting up. But he had a weird angle on it, because Kalates was super squirmy underneath, right? Like, some of these guys, if you get it from them, they kind of maneuver around a little bit. Some people, they, they I don't mean they spaz, but they give you, it's like trying to ride a wild Bronco, man. Like, they, they really give you a lot of problems underneath, and they're trying to perfectly execute you off. So to balance himself so he didn't get turned, Borg had to balance on his head and right shoulder like a break dancer. Um, you know, and, and that's not something that I think they teach you all the time. I think you could post in your head sometimes to defend certain things, but it's the kind of adaptation Borg is able to make based on his body type and skill set. And he's probably been there before and, and knows how his body uh, can push weight down or to, to a certain angle that he needs. But something to keep in mind there about doing that, like uh, in an ideal world, you step over the head and you're almost perpendicular with them. He couldn't quite get there, but he could he could wrap the head, but he needed a weight to keep Kilates down because he was so so mobile underneath. So he posted on his head and shoulder. That takes a ridiculous amount of core strength and balance and skill. Ray Borg putting on a hell of a show there. Uh, Kevin Lee defeating Michelle Prezeris via unanimous decision, 30-27, 29, 28, and then 30-27. Um I had picked Brazeris, not on a Brazerish, however you want to pronounce it. I, I not on a strong whim. I just thought his size might overwhelm Lee. I think that the problem Lee had had previously was he would not exactly let guys do things to him exactly, but he didn't exactly get out in front of the, the fight. Right, the, he would respond to things and then counterattack and then maybe launch into his offense. But there were just these moments that constantly kept popping up where he would wait for something to happen, and I don't. He didn't do that this time. He got out a little bit in front of it and was able to um, secure takedowns. In fact, got to Prezeris's back for a little bit. Now couldn't do much with it. Nor would I expect him to. That would be a tough way to finish a guy with that kind of skill in that particular dimension. But. I just mean the key takeaway for me, for Lee, from this fight, like from a scouting perspective, was that it was not that he's not a physical specimen. It's not that he doesn't have a lot of good tools. They never do this. Not that he didn't have um, all kinds of reasons to have optimism in him, and I did. I just thought a guy who is not maybe as skilled, but bigger, maybe slightly better in one dimension, but always sort of going for his style of fight, might give Lee problems. Lee, I think, turned a corner with this fight, or maybe turned a corner in training, and then showed us with this fight that he's just not going to let guys get out there in front of him. He's not going to let guys, um, you know, define the complexion of the fight. Then he has to fight out of a deficit. I thought he was just just better this time, just a lot. And and again, I think there's another gear he can hit. There's another level he can he can climb to. Um, but he, but uh, good progress this time for sure. Uh, Dan Kelly defeated Patrick Walsh, 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Uh, this fight was dreadful. Absolutely nothing to say about it in any kind of positive way, so I won't. Uh, I'll just say this is just one of those fights that looked like they were trying to fill broadcast time. Um, they're, 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 I, I'm not going to bash these two guys because, you know, they're the competitive athletes and I don't want to be that kind of guy, but I don't have anything positive to say about it, so I won't say anything about it. Uh, Neil Magny defeated Kaichi Kunimoto via rear naked choke, uh, 122nd of the third round. This fight actually, 
so often, often I make a prediction and either it's wrong or I got the guy right or it's, I, it was wrong and I didn't get the guy right. And then they, sometimes I get lucky and it happens the other way. I thought for sure this was going to happen the way that it did, namely. Kunimoto was going to try and take him down against the fence. He was going to have a hard time doing it, and then something was going to happen from there. Either uh, Magni would beat him up along the fence line or reverse him and do something else. It's exactly what I thought happened. Um, Kunimoto tried to take him down. I think, again, good luck taking people down in 2015 against the cage when they really put... It's everybody's best practice at this point. It's such a strong point of emphasis. In any event, um, so uh, he couldn't do it. Eventually, Magni was able to reverse him into the cage as they jockeyed along for position over the course of several rounds. He landed some decent shots inside, and they even got taken down at one point, but he was able to get back up as well. By the way, there's a difference there. I think he framed for either a triangle or an armbar. Didn't get it immediately once he recognized he didn't get it because you have to slip out head first and then your arms and then everything else. As soon as the head popped out, I can't remember if it was a triangle or an armbar. Maybe it was an armbar that maybe his elbow got out. One portion of his body got out, and... Uh, Magni immediately recognized it, put his feet in the hips, pushed off, and then stood up. And he almost got, he almost paid for it, but it was enough where he didn't. Anyway, so what eventually happened? He eventually was able to score at distance. Uh, Magni's got a long reach and, and had Kunimoto against the fence and was banging him out from a distance, hurt him, um, was able to get him to the ground, take his back, and was pounding on him, couldn't finish him. Third round, and this is what I wanted to see. I think that. You know, Mag- everyone talks about Magni's win streak, and you should. It's really important, but he's still beating guys at a basically the same kind of level. Some guys more talented than the others. Some guys um, um, different skill sets than the others. I'm not saying they're all the same guy, or they're all necessarily exact same ability. But he hasn't quite reached into the upper echelon of the division. And I think what I'm what I want to see him do is, if he wants to get there. When you fight guys like Kunimoto, who is very talented, very credible, you need to show another gear. It's one of the hallmarks of guys who you can really believe in when they graduate up the division. You know, it's not just that they beat these other guys, but how you beat them. What kind of display of skill differential and domination and finishing instincts are you able to show? Because if you can't finish a guy like Kunimoto, who I'm not saying is the easiest guy in the world to finish, but if you can't finish him, I don't necessarily know why I have a strong reason to believe well, you can finish a top 10 guy. It's just not. It's not. It's not clear to me. Again, things happen in MMA. I, I swear. To, I swear to God, I'm going to take him to the pound. Um. Um. Anyway. So in the end, he came out in that third round. Right away, went to work. Bang, bang, bang. Same thing. Took him down. Kunimoto was gassed. Was tired. Was hurt. Took his back and then finished him off. It was great. It was that extra gear I needed to see. What I want to see him do this, though, is a little more in a narrower timeline. So now I know he could finish guys like Kunimoto, which is not an easy thing to do. Barbas! Stop. Thank you. Now that I know he can do that, um, let's, let's shorten up the timeline. Let's make that a little bit narrower. Let's make that a little bit easier. All right. In the main event, Max Holloway defeating Cole Miller. Via unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27. If Cole Miller won around on your scorecard, it was probably the first. It certainly was not the second or the third. What do you want to say? I, a lot of good things to say about Cole Miller. I thought his striking looked a little bit better than it had in the past. Not quite as fluid or dynamic as Holloway by any stretch. But um, he was able to have, I thought, how do you want to say it? Um, it was careful shot selection, but it was and while reserved, and not of the same level as Holloway. It was still good enough to land and create some problems for Holloway. Um, so not as frequent 
not maybe as hard, certainly not with the kicking game. Remember that early in the first round, he was able to go to switching stance to southpaw, was able to go to the left, to the left of the body twice. Um, so there was that. But I just mean, like, Cole Miller wasn't out there like some feeble noob. Like, he was out there um, finding homes for the combinations that he likes. And it worked a fair number of times. It's just not at the same level that Holloway was for striking. Holloway is incredible. Switching stances, circling out from angles, clinch breaking right away. Never lets you get a hold of him, Harley. The times that he did get a hold of Holloway along the fence line, who wasn't able to do a whole lot with it in terms of the clinch, Holloway would go hip to hip. There was one moment, the sweep that Cole Miller got. So Cole Miller, angles angles perpendicular to him, right? Uh, did not have the underhook. I checked the tape this morning. Did not have the underhook. Takes his top leg and goes inside uh, the uh, nearest leg of of um, Holloway. And then brings his other leg underneath. So in any kind of sweep, it's always two things that have to happen. Uh, and they can happen simultaneously. Uh, on simpler ones, they happen in two different motions. Um, and they happen in different ways. But the keys to a sweep are basically two things. One, you need to be lifted off of your base. And two, a side has to be blocked for you to be turned to. Right? That's what has to happen. You can't just yank someone over if their base is ridiculous. And, and even if you block a certain side, if you're not, if you're not doing the things that you need to be doing... Uh, hold on just one second here. Uh, sorry about that. If you're not, if you, even if you just lift them off the base... That's not necessarily enough, and even if you just block a side and try to turn them, you're not going to pull someone off their base. So, like, for example, let's let's take a scissor sweep, right, which is a similar sweep to the thing he did, kind of, sort of, in the sense you have to scissor your legs, although you go the opposite way. In a scissor sweep, right, one leg is on the outside of your, if you're you're on your knees, one of my legs is going to go on the outside of your legs, so I'm blocking that side. I'm going to hold this side, too, with my hand, right? So uh, I like to do it through this side. So I'm going to grab your left lapel, and I'm going to put my left leg on the outside of your right leg. So now I'm blocking a side, but that's not enough. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to put my other leg across your waist. I And some people just think you just push and turn. And sometimes that works against guys with crappy base, but against people with good base, that doesn't work. Yes, I'm scissoring. Yes, I've blocked a side, but that to me is not enough. What I like to do is I like to pull guys onto my shin, the shin across your waist, and then I like to scissor because now I've lifted your weight onto to- on top of me. I can still manage it, but now you don't have a you can't sit down on your base. You lift them up and turn. Cole Miller does something like that. Now I'm not sure about the mechanics of the of the base part. That to me is still confusing. But what I will say is he I mentioned before he goes inside, wraps the leg, and then comes underneath. So he's blocking the leg from posting on Holloway. He then underhooks the same side. Somehow he manages to, I'm not sure what he was waiting for. I, I think maybe the other side elbow. Either way, he just explodes into the turn because he has him wrapped up. There's nowhere for him to sit back on his base, right? His base is maybe coming full. Maybe that's what he was doing. He had the underhook, and he had this so he could pull him over himself and then use that to turn, and then immediately transition into a knee bar. It was super slick. It didn't work. Because Jiu-Jitsu is very hard, so credit to Holloway for knowing that something was up. But Cole Miller, pretty incredible in that way. Uh, in the end, though, Holloway, man, he just gets better as the fight goes longer. <laughs> he just gets better as the fight goes longer. Um, I thought his combinations at the end began to open up. 
I'm going to say he's Mayweather-esque in the following sense, just in the sense that, uh, not that he's Mayweather at all in any kind of real way, but what he is, is is um, he makes adjustments minute over minute, round over round. So like people are like, I think Holloway gets stronger as the fight goes on. No, no, no. He definitely gets stronger as the fight goes on. He chips away you at the body. He tries to find openings that, you know, that make it difficult for you to see. He doesn't headhunt, but he still finds home for power shots. Um, he, he never really takes a lot of damage. He has great cardio, and as you begin to tire out, all the things he was doing well before but maybe had a little bit of problems with, they all open up, which then opens up yet another layer of his offense. When he can string together the first set of things he had trouble with, once that becomes easy, then he can hit even in a second and a third gear in striking. So really kind of incredible from uh, Max Holloway. In the main event, man, what is there to say? Benson Henderson defeating Brendan Thatch by a rear naked choke. Four minutes, uh, excuse me, in the fourth round at 3.58. Um, Brandon Thatch didn't come out looking poor. Both guys switching stances pretty effortlessly. Brandon Thatch looked, uh, I thought, pretty fast, even despite having a weight differential. Um, I thought his, I thought the timing, again, another guy, great timing on his knee strikes. Um, l- lots to like about what Brandon Thatch did there. Brandon Thatch did, excuse me. But... Benson Henderson just going to the body the way that he did. Uh, incredible, right? Um, investing in that over and over and over again and getting in and getting out. Never getting into lengthy physical wrapped up exchanges with Brandon Thatch. Never getting Brandon Thatch to lean on him in any kind of particular way. Um, I, I just thought that was really impressive. You know, conservative but aggressive. Because sometimes Henderson is conservative and then, uh eh, not much more, but he had a lot more going on this time in terms of things he was at least willing to try. So there was that. But to me, uh, the big thing that I thought was, one, the body shots and how they invested late. And also how he was able to close the eyes of Brandon Thatch, never taking too much of a damage if he took a shot, sort of resetting, not getting into firefights, just never letting Thatch do the things that Thatch likes to do, never letting Thatch get on a roll, never letting Thatch build momentum, Right, always kind of pot shotting him. So Thatch was always in this ready gear, but he was not letting his hands go. There wasn't the same kind of offensive frequency that you typically see from Thatch. So that was missing. But the ending sequence was great. He had the seatbelt grip over under, um, both hooks in, and it was kind of loose. Maybe he let him loose on purpose. Maybe he fought the hands. I have to go back and look. But either way, Thatch sits up. Bad move, dog. Bad move. Because what happens when he sits up? He has the over under grip. All he has to do is just let go of this, and then this one comes around, right? So he does that. He locks up the bicep grip. Um, Thatch tries to hand fight, but you can see um, he's never able to get, like when he grabs his wrist, he's not able to extend the arm. He goes back into that Matt Hughes Gable grip style you saw on Frank Trigg. So, so the choke worked in the end, and he tapped. But the other thing about it is if you go back and look, um, Thatch gets turned on his side, and then... And then Henderson brings his other knee up, the same side the choke is on. He brings his knee up, he puts a foot in the hip to keep him from turning back. Also to shield that same side for the choke. Um, another small detail. The, the takeaway for me on that one was, you know, listen, Henderson, he goes to these Pan Am no-gis, and he goes to the World Championships, and he doesn't get, you know, he does pretty well, but he doesn't get far enough to really, you know, contend for a medal. Um, although he wins the smaller tournaments, for sure. 
But either way, what, what's proven is that that competition experience, both in the big tournaments and the small one, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing you want to see from a guy reinvesting in his craft, getting back down to brass tacks, and doing the sorts of things you need to do to stay relevant and competitive. And it's made his jiu-jitsu that much better. There's often been criticisms, not just that Henderson doesn't finish, but that he doesn't. he spends a lot of time in control positions. Didn't spend. A lot, I mean, he did spend some time in control positions in this fight, although not a ton to avoid having to work with Thatch's weight. But um, I just thought that was really great. Like you could just tell, man, that seatbelt grip setup was was ready to rock. And the seatbelt grip setup has a lot of value that have, has nothing to do with any kind of finishing. It's um, it, it's a Marcelo Garcia patented form of control. He was one of the first guys. Used to be previously double unders, and now it's the seatbelt grip um, over the top. You know, and so the way it works is that the hand coming over, you have to pretend like they're stabbing in the heart, and then this hand comes on top. And that's how it worked, and he had it. So as soon as he sat up, this hand he yanked through, which just left this, and and had to go. But it was the finer points of finishing. I thought, you know, you just always want to see someone reinvest in their craft, Kenny Florian style. And I think you saw that from Benson Henderson. Uh, not a lot of time left, so let's go up to the other cards that happened this week. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, Benson Henderson, definitely my fighter of the card on that one. Real quickly, I want to make a note about the broadcast itself. I know that they put those six fights on these Fox Sports main card, maybe because they want to give fans more of what they want, maybe because they want to drive later into the night. The main event didn't start till 1 a.m. Um, I understand all that, and, and I get it, and I get what Fox Sports 1 is trying to do. But as a consumer, it is brutal to have to sit through all that. The commercials are repetitive. Why is Dan Kelly versus Patrick Walsh on any UFC main card anywhere on the planet, including Manila? That makes absolutely no sense. So to me, you know, less is a little bit more. If you got ads to sell, I get it. If you got um, whatever you need to do from a business perspective and, and a broadcasting perspective, you have some T's you got to cross and some I's you got to dot. But as a consumer, I'm just letting you know, if anyone from Fox Sports is watching, it's a great product that they have going on there. I think the broadcast is great. Uh, John Attic and Brian Stan, I think, arguably the best commentary duo in the game, certainly in the UFC. The six fights with the redundant, repetitive commercials, especially when some of those six are terrible fights that have no business being in the UFC, is a lot to take. It's a lot to take. I really, really wish it was not this difficult. You shouldn't make it a chore for me to watch. You really shouldn't. All right. Um, so Friday night was Bellator 133. This took place at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California. I have not been to the Save Mart Center. No point in going through the prelim card. Um, and even the main card left a lot to be desired. But Chris Honeycutt taking on Clayton McFarland. Chris Honeycutt wins at 416 of the third round. This was actually a surprisingly competitive bout. Um, McFarlane, I had slept on, you know, you see these guys who like are D3 and D2 wrestlers, they can do really well in MMA. It's not the same kind of thing where, you know, yes, Honeycutt is going to have that division one finalist kind of finesse maybe, but, um, you know, McFarlane's not going to be far behind, was able to get a couple of takedowns and put Honeycutt on the defensive a little bit. Now this was the Honeycutt show. I think for the most part, I think he controlled with, I think he was just obviously much stronger. I think his punching power was clearly a big differential between he and uh, and McFarlane. And then obviously late, you know, some of the things that McFarlane did just forced a second gear out of Honeycutt. So, um, um, you know, in the end he prevailed. But um, definitely a little more competitive than I thought it was going to be, but a good, nice showing for Chris Honeycutt. Able to show takedowns along the cage, able to show good scrambling. Able to show good ground and pound, really good ground and pound. I mean, he finished him off from back mount with punches to the ribs. 
right? You don't see that very often. I mean, McFarlane was was done, was just eating shots, so, um, but was conscious, you know, it's a, it's a pretty rare thing. So big punching power, big physical strength, didn't gas, which I really like seeing. Um, nice takedowns himself. So McFarlane was game and pushed Honeycutt, never to danger zone, but pushed him to a point where he had to do more than I think he thought he would have to to put him away. Uh, Julia Budd defeated Gabrielle Holloway, 30 30-25, 30-24, uh, an absolutely dreadful fight. I know the scores are crazy, but a dreadful fight, not worth speaking about. I mean, I know they're trying to grow their 145-pound division. God bless them. They need to. It's an important part. This is a building block to get there, but this is just a fight not worth speaking about. Uh, Daniel Weichel defeated Pat Curran via split decision, 28-29, 29-28, 29-28. I don't see how you can get a split decision out of this one. Uh, Weichel pretty clearly won. Um... What do you say about Pat Curran? Some people are wondering whether those tournaments that these guys had to go through, the Chandlers and uh, the Currens to the Pitbulls to a lesser extent, um, whether it broke them or not. And maybe it's a decent theory. I don't know there's enough evidence to really sign on to it just yet. But what I would say is it's certainly troubling what's happened to Pat Curran. Look, if you interviewed him right when, at his peak, what he would say about the tournaments were it forced him to get really good really quickly. You know, he just got better. From the tournaments, technically, he was all, he was able to add a lot of skills um, in a quick amount of time. And we're talking about a couple of years here over all the different things that have happened in his career. But you get the idea. You know, those tournaments fighting so close back to back, you were able to really sharpen up some things. And I think that helped him. I think he was always pretty good, but I think that helped him shoot up past his contemporaries. But somewhere along the line, either from the damage taken in those tournaments or the way in which he wasn't able to readapt the skill-building process after the fact, he hasn't added a lot of skills. People talk about, well, he's regressed. I don't know that he's regressed. I think that he's regressed maybe a little bit. I just think more than anything else, he stopped adding skills. There's like, you go back to Benson Henderson, he's clearly still adding skills. Clearly. You know, he's a, Benson Henderson is a very talented guy. Pat Kern, I feel like it's still a lot of the same. It's a lot of boxing combinations. Um, it's a it's takedown defense and and it's not much more than that. I, I you know what else what else can you point to about his game? Well, he had the um, he had the submission finish of uh, Daniel Strauss, but not much more than that, right? Like there's you you don't look at him like a super big time submission threat. He doesn't take you down pass guard, take you back, and then you know whip out a helicopter armbar or something like that. You know what I mean? That's not his thing. And maybe it should be. Maybe there should be some component of his game, but there's just something missing. There's something missing. Um, and again, he's been in some tough fights, so I think he's certainly taken a pounding over the years. But so whether it's the tournament or you know the fights with Pitbull and Strauss and everything else, I don't know. But um, to me, that's the biggest issue: is he just hasn't built on enough of the different. He got really good at boxing, and he got really good at takedown defense, and he got good at, you know, I know he finished Marlon Sandra with a surprise sort of head kick off the end of a combination, but and that's pretty great too, don't get me wrong, it's a legitimate win, but um, I don't think that he's, he just sort of said, well, these two things are working, I'm just going to keep going with them, rather than building a few maybe extra details that could make him a little bit more competitive than he is. So Vaishal, I thought, looked pretty good, you know. Um, had a much better jab, crisper combinations. Um, was able to get the takedown when he needed it. So so much for Pat Curran's vaunted takedown defense. Vaishal deserved the win. In the main event, Alexander Slomenko defeated Melvin Manhoof. 
uh, via spinning back fist at 125 of the second round. So obviously, I don't think Melvin Manhoff should even fight the rest of the year, if ever again. Bellator needs to stop booking him immediately. This is like getting to the point where it's grotesque and dangerous. So hopefully they listen. Um, Glory shouldn't book him either. Uh, at least, not, again, not the rest of the year. But um, a decent game plan from Shlomenko, given his limited skill set. If you saw Shlomenko fight Lombard back in the day, you knew Shlomenko could take a shot. Like, I know he lost to Halsey. I know he lost to Ortiz. But these were, like, big wrestler dudes taking him down and just giving him, uh, you know, the kind of fight he just can't deal with. But he can strike with a lot of people. Maybe he doesn't win, but he's hard to put away. He'll always be there. And he's got, you know, he's turned a gimmick into something that actually works a little bit. So what I would say is um, Shlomenko has terrible takedowns. But what he did to Melvin Manhoff, like, Melvin Manhoff used to be characteristically aggressive and on his toes and throwing and maybe that would help him get taken down or maybe he'd get countered but he was throwing Manhoof didn't throw a whole lot in this one he would throw when he got Shlomenko against the fence or in a more manageable range and then he would still miss a lot too by the way but and also he didn't throw with the same kind of dynamic different um, combinations he was throwing a lot of sort of uh, head strikes and, and missing but more than that, even though Shlomenko's takedown attempts were terrible and Manhoof stuffed him, they were just to get him defensive. So what wound up happening was you had a very defensively-minded Melvin Manhoof who didn't look physically uh, shot in the sense that he couldn't move around. He did look pretty athletic and pretty agile, but he just wasn't throwing. Hardly at all. Very little offensive activity from Melvin Manhoof. Um, and so Shlomenko was able to... Land a spinning back kick on close dist or a spinning back fist, excuse me, in close distance, and uh, came around the corner. Bang! He was already there and got him. I think he had thrown a couple punches earlier to close the distance, maybe. Um, but either way, uh, Manhoff was just never in an offensive mind. He was in a defensive mind. I know he got caught with this punch, but it was a defensive mind where it was like waiting to react to something, not a shelled up one where you're still popping and coming forward. It was it was you know like a like a nervous cat. Right, that's what it was like. So Shlomenko wins. Um, uh, fighter of the car for me would be Chris Honeycutt, but Shlomenko getting back in the win column. Maybe Daniel Weichel too because he had toughest fight, but I'm going to go Chris Honeycutt because I just think it's important for him to get the kind of shine that he's getting. And then last but certainly not least, we've got a couple minutes here left. Uh, Marlon Moraes. Actually, let me start back. Uh, Hakeem Dawadu defeated Tristan Johnson. Tristan Johnson doesn't get a lot of respect, but he's a very good fighter. Hakeem Dawadu throwing great Muay Thai combinations off the hands and finishing with the feet, showing good takedown defense, I thought, which was really important. Uh, he is definitely a prospect you want to watch. So he wins via KO uh, punches at 159 of the third round. Uh, Andrew McInnes defeated Cody McKenzie via headbutt, or, you know, McKenzie headbutted him at 458 of the first round and then got DQ'd, but McInnes was, you know... Uh, not that he was, like, rem remarkably better than McKenzie. I just have to say, it was not good. Uh, Shane Campbell defeated Derek Boyle via uh, body kick and punches at 31 seconds of the third round. Um, this went more as, as I expected. I wasn't sure that Campbell was going to finish him, but this was the one you may have seen it on SportsCenter or even on ESPN social media where Campbell hits him with a body shot, I believe. Uh, Doyle crumbles, and as he crumbles, Campbell does the Hadouken bit, which was kind of awesome. So Campbell wins that one. Uh, Campbell and Doyle are not too dissimilar, but Doyle's one of these like aggressive aggro strikers who squares up on you and just wants to have a you know face punching contest a little bit more. Campbell's a little bit more in and out finesse, which ultimately pay the um, 
made the difference in the end. Uh, and then finally, Marlon Moraes defended his title, his World Series of Fighting uh, bantamweight title against Josh Hill. Josh Hill, you might remember from Tough Nations. VA unanimous decision, 49-46. Um, got a tough first round, Marlon Moraes, um, getting physically controlled, I think, for a lot of it. Uh, it looked like getting his nose broken. It was bleeding pretty bad. But then the takeaway was slowly over the course of the fight, he was able to establish his game. He didn't panic. He didn't succumb to the injury and was able to sort of eke out a win. Um, not the best performance of Marlon Moraes, but probably a good experience for him. And certainly shows he is capable of, of the kind of stick to that you need to be a champion, that you need to fight upper echelon guys. But that he went five rounds with Hill without stopping him, I think is a little bit problematic for me. Uh, and that put, that fight took place at the Edmonton Expo Center in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it aired, of course, on NBC Sports. Fighter of that card has got to be Hakeem Dawabu, by the way. Um, and I don't have any figures on attendance or LiveGate, although I suspect for that one. And for the Bellator one, it's probably very low. Uh, all right, so this weekend we have what? And there's a legacy fight as well. I don't have the results of that, but uh, I'll link it up in the post on MMA Fighting. This coming week we have Bigfoot versus Mir and probably a bunch of other stuff as well. So follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, my Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. And of course you can email me at Luke.Thomas at um, SBNation.com. And until next time, guys, enjoy the fights. <laughs>